we had a joke between us in racing where he never said good luck to me because I used to hate people saying good luck to me. He used to just say it's a good day to die, which means put everything into it, just leave no stone unturned. But winning the 100 was, was probably the best race of my entire life. You're listening to the Better Stories podcast with Sam Lloyd, taking inspiration from our communities and people. Hello and welcome to the latest Better Stories podcast and what a treat we have in store because I'm delighted to be joined by a true sporting icon. So it's a warm welcome to Baroness Tanny Gray Thompson. Tanny, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. Just stuck in my house. I, I can't actually even remember the last time I went out, but apart from that, I'm okay. Yeah, like everybody. Well, it's lovely to speak to you on the line today. Uh, Let's start from the beginning, shall we? Born in Cardiff, christened Caris Davina. Now, I never knew this until I did my research, but where did Tani come from? So I've got an older sister called Sean, and my parents told her there was going to be another baby and apparently she was absolutely ecstatic. And my parents thought they were just brilliant parents that they brought up such a well-rounded uh, sort of toddler. <laughs> and then um, when I arrived, I was quite a small baby. And apparently she stood next to the cot and just sort of stood there poking me going, it's tiny, it's tiny, it's tiny. So she thought there was going to be a baby her size to play with and was massively disappointed when she met me. And um, <laughs> basically refused to call me. So tiny became tiny quite quickly refused to call me anything else my sister is so calm and placid and if my parents said no no we'll, we'll call the baby Karis, she just screamed the house down so um my parents just changed my name because wow. it was easier and that's an so easier that, life yeah that's where it came from and then my, my daughter's called Karis as well and and i'll be really straight the only reason I, I really wanted a welsh name for her and it was the only welsh girl's name that my english husband could pronounce because he just mutilated Angharad and Siriol and Seren and any other name he just couldn't say. So so we went with Karis. <laughs> what a great story. Now, you were brought up in Cardiff, as you mentioned, but I'm really interested to know where your passion and love of sport came from. Was it very much from a young age? Yeah, I don't remember a time when it wasn't there. So I grew up in a household which was um, uh, very biased toward Welsh rugby. <laughs> Good to hear. Yes, of course. Part of our religion, right? Yeah. So I remember being really young and my mum making us wear a bobble hat and scarf to watch it on the telly. And (laughs) we we had to sort of hate anybody who who was a good player from another country. So, you know, we were brought up to dislike, uh, you know, Grant Batty, Jean-Pierre Reeve. I remember there was one game where um, he'd been cut and there was quite a lot of blood. And my mum screaming at the telly saying, get him off, ref. I mean, this is before the blood roll. And I, I remember saying to her, what if he was Welsh? And she said, he would be spilling his blood for his country. That's oh, entirely that. different. Oh, and yes. so it was like, oh, so, so that's the environment I grew up in. So, um, But my, my dad was a huge sports fan and um, played a lot of sport. And, and actually, at the beginning, it was just about, they believed in physical activity, actually. And they believed in being healthy and... So in the early years, it was about just being physically active and then sort of sport and elite sport then sort of crept in for me. So it was kind of a slow process, really. But we were encouraged to do lots of different activity and have a go. And it didn't matter whether you're any good or not. Because I remember my dad saying, you know, you, you don't get good straight away. You know, you need to you need time to develop and learn. And, and so that was actually 
actually really balanced. My dad also was very keen, although I, I loved wheelchair racing. He was very keen that I didn't just concentrate on that from a very young age, that I actually played other sports and did other things until I was about 16, which I, th I think is really good to, to have that balance in your life, not to have this massive pressure just to, to only do that one sport. But who would have thought how much of a pivotal role that sport would play in your life? If you had a crystal ball when you were young, because it's had a huge influence and impact on your life, hasn't it? I mean, massive. I mean, it's just huge. But I think there's also, you know, just moments in time. So, you know, the, I remember watching the London Marathon and, you know, saying to my mum, I'm going to do the marathon one day. And she's like, OK, yeah, lovely. Um, you know, they never said no, but there was kind of, I think, quite a lot of, OK, you know, that that's fine. But then, you know, I think... Uh, I remember watching Chris Hallam, who trained in Cumbran, lived in Cumbran, watching him win in the early 80s and thinking, I, I want to do what Chris Hallam's done. I, I want to be in the London Marathon. And, um, you know, I think it helped having somebody, you know, he had a high profile in Wales at the time. And, you know, I think that helped me as a young athlete, being able to see somebody who who I could sort of emulate. And then, you know, years later, you know, we used to train together and, um, you know, he was a huge support in my career. Um, but I think that that really helped having somebody at that moment in time doing a sport I loved. Uh, you know, Chris was, um, I mean, he's passed away now. He's amazing. I mean, he could be rude and arrogant and he had so much confidence, but he was a massive supporter of me. Um, and and that, that really encouraged me and helped me. He was a legend. He was such a dude, wasn't he, you know, with his blonde locks and his permatan yeah. and it just goes to show what you're saying though everyone needs a role model don't they I think they do and you know he was I remember um I can't remember what year it was on the London marathon but he he knew where the static cameras were and I remember him pushing past one of the cameras and blowing a kiss to it and, and <laughs> why thinking, doesn't that surprise me you know, thinking like, oh my god like, my mum would kill me if I did that because she would have been you know what are you doing messing around you know put your head down and push but um yeah I mean he, he just brought this confidence and he didn't allow people to patronize him and you know he was he was quite in your face I mean he was quite a Marmite character but but actually what people didn't necessarily know about him was he, he did have a real soft side he didn't show it very often and he was massively sort of kind and supportive and helpful um you know he, he'd tell me what he thought you know if he didn't think I was training hard enough or too hard he'd, he'd just tell me straight but but actually having those people in your life is 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 incredibly important and um you know with, with without him I wouldn't have had the career I did and then you know you know a lot of the younger athletes you know sort of have to be should be thankful to him because he's the one that put disability sport on the map in the UK and he didn't allow anyone to patronize him or pat him on the head you know if they did <laughs> it'd fairly quickly tell them to get lost <laughs> he created a maybe legacy. a few more words yeah. than that yeah, yeah he created a legacy there's no doubt I mean talking mm. about influences in your life you mentioned there Chris uh, talked about your parents and I'm really interested to know when your parents said especially your dad you know you should try a variety of sports to then make the decision so when did you <laughs> realize and decide that wheelchair racing was your sport was going to be your sport of choice I think I, I, in all honesty, I knew from the age of 12, but um, it was, uh, you know, from almost the, the first moment I tried it, it was like, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. 
but um you know and i was really bad at most other sports you know the highlight of my swimming career is i failed to drown just you know it was touch and go but i mean i was really bad um but i think what it, it was good to do the other things i said to get that kind of balance to put it into perspective if you're having a time when you know training in one sport's not going so well you've got other things to fall back on you know for me it gave me you know it, it was it was almost good to kind of go and do swimming and you know to realize that actually i was okay at wheelchair racing you know those and i, I think you know i mean we we talk about lots of different things you know we talk about cross training i basically I was cross training you know and so yeah it was 12 but really really from the age of 16 it was that was it okay i wasn't really going to do anything else and then you know a joke but it's not really but you know every decision i made was based around me wanting to do wheelchair racing i went to loughborough university because that is where seb co had gone and you know it's good for sport and you know it 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 it, inf it, it was part of every single decision i made even down to time in of the year when I got married, when we got pregnant, you know, basically it was all put around my competition schedule. I want to talk to you about your sporting achievements because it, it's quite phenomenal looking at the stats and, you know, it's been such an illustrious career. So already you've mentioned briefly the London Marathon. Um, I know that is an event that is incredibly close to your heart. And that's why I'm, I'm really interested when you said to your mum watching it, I'm going to compete there. And she was like, yeah, whatever. But crikey, I mean, you just won it time and time and time again. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to explain when you're in sports. If, if you're not a sports person, it's hard to explain what it feels like when you're doing it. And, and I didn't spend a lot of time looking backwards. It would be always, okay, right, I've done this. What can I do next? How can I get better? And how can I improve? And it wasn't all, I mean, yeah, I mean, winning in sport is important, but it wasn't all about winning. It was about actually, how can I be the best I can be? And, you know, if you kind of fast forward to retirement, you know, the point I decided, actually, you know, I knew I was going to stop competing not long after 2004. Um, you know, I, I kind of kept going for a little bit longer to be absolutely sure that I was done. But um, for me, it was about being the best I could. And, and when I knew I couldn't improve anymore, then I kind of knew that for that part of my career in sport, I was finished. So for me, it was about personal bests. And, you know, that's the stuff that you've got control over. You can't control whether you win a race or don't win a race, or you can't control what the tactics people use. All for me, it was about just getting better every year. Uh, and that that was the massive drive was was you know being better because if you're better then you've got a chance of winning if you don't get better and you don't improve your times you haven't got and you know you, you may win for a bit but you don't have longevity in in your career well it's about that mental aptitude isn't it to, to be a winner but I, I want to talk about you know your your Paralympics and and firstly your first Paralympics was Seoul uh, I think, am I right in thinking you were around 19 years of age? What what, yeah. what are your memories of, of, of going going to Seoul at that time? Um, I remember it was a really long flight and we went via Greenland and we had to have four attempts to, to try and land in Greenland. I remember oh, that. Thinking, we're not even going to get there. <laughs> you know, when the plane goes down and then takes off again. <laughs> not good. Not good at all. No. Um, no. I remember being so excited to, to be in Seoul and then you know, the joy of 300 British athletes on a plane with identical kit bags. 
Sorry, this is not the glamorous stuff that you remember. That's the stressful bit, surely. Yeah, and I mean, the village was amazing and, you know, it was a big step up for me. I don't think anyone was really expecting that I was going to make the team. You know, it, it was a long shot for me making the team. But um, I won a bronze medal there and that, that was a huge, it was hugely motivational for me. But what I do remember is the way the timetable went is that um, so Chris Hallam was there and his 400 metre final was just before mine. And um, he won a bronze medal and we were waiting to go on the track as he was coming off the track. And he sort of just said to me, yeah, I won a bronze, you know, go for it. Uh, in his sort of quite sort of short way that he sometimes spoke. And I remember that just being, I don't know, kind of quite sweet really and just you know it didn't impact on on my race but actually just the camaraderie that you sometimes have within the team and the support that you get um some of that is is really important and, and really lovely but it was an amazing experience because it made me it gave me quite a lot of confidence to think okay right this is where i've got to now what can i do if i train harder i train smarter you know i, I put different things in my training program where where can i go next so for me, that was it, it, it was the right time, I think, to give me a bit of a kick to say, right, OK, go on to that next level. And, and because of timing, you know, I graduated in 91 um, and then it meant I had a full year off, uh, you know, to just concentrate on training and, and, and competing to, to get to Barcelona. And talking about Barcelona, very, very special, breaking the 60 second barrier for 400 metres. What a moment that must have been. It was. I mean, it was one of those um, sort of records in women's wheelchair racing that people had got, women had got really, really close um, and never did it. And then to do it in sort of Paralympic Games final, you know, and, and to be the, the first woman to break it. I mean, now, if you do in a minute, it's probably considered, you know, kind of junior GB level. But at, at the time it was, it was and, and again, personally, that, that was... Um, uh, a, a massive jump because you go, okay, right, I've, I've broken that barrier. What can can I do next? And Barcelona was amazing. I mean, it was just such a a really cool games to be at, and you know we had a lot of support um, for the crowds. It was um, one of the sponsors was a a Spanish charity called Once, which is for blind and visually impaired people. So they kind of got the games. So you know we had loads of people coming in to watch. The atmosphere was amazing. The British team did well. So it, it was a really fun games to be at. And that was followed by Atlanta, Sydney and Athens. And your Paralympic medal tally is absolutely phenomenal, along with achievements, of course, at World Championships. But didn't you break something like 30 world records on track, which is unbelievable? Yeah, um, they're, I mean, they're, it's an amazing feeling. It's quite different feeling to to winning a medal at a major championships, to know that at that moment in time, you've gone faster than anybody else. But, you know, world records are only yours for a bit because, you know, someone will come and break them. And for me, the, there's probably two races in my career where I broke the world records for the, for the 400. And it was just one of those moments in time where every bit of the race was perfect. You know, you come away from most races, even if you've gone fast or you've done well, and there's always something you can look at and, and sort of try and pull apart. 
but there are moments when you think actually there is nothing more that I could have done in that race to to get it right and um it was you know when I retired my 200 world record went about three months after I retired and I remember looking at the race results and seeing American athlete Jess Garley who broke the record and there's this teeny bit you go oh that's a bit of a shame but actually you can't do it once you retire you can't do anything about it so you know I, I remember sending her an email saying you know well done you know because it was it it was a a, a huge step up there's a little bit of me that would have loved to have been in the race where she broke the record yeah um yeah. but you know it's yeah they're, they're yours for a period of time they're not yours to own so they're nice when you have them but then you know they they go again when you look back at such an illustrious career is there one key moment that really stands out for you that's a pretty tricky question to ask you i know but is it what you've just alluded to about that those particular races where you felt just from start to finish, everything went brilliantly, perfectly, according to plan? But is there one moment when you reflect? Um, yeah, it, it would be Athens um, Paralympics. So I'd had my 800 metre final and, you know, I'd been unbeaten for what, 12 years or something. And uh, I basically screwed up the final Uh made a split second wrong decision. And even if I'd made the decision, the, the plan for the race was for me. And the only way I had a chance of winning it was to go to the front and time trial it and just pull the kick out of the other women in the race. And as we came off the bend, I decided for some unknown reason not to do that. And, and there was no guarantees because it was an amazing field. We had three American athletes in the final who were unbelievably strong and fast. So even if I'd gone to the front, there was no guarantees that I was going to, when um and i remember coming off the track and just thinking what an idiot what you know just i almost made the decision that put me in a situation that i was not going to win or, or not have a chance of winning uh, and that was pretty miserable you know coming off the track and lots of british supporters telling me how rubbish i was and you know my family kind of were there and i remember thinking you know that i disappointed my family and there was lots of emotional stuff going on um, but then it was coming back and I won the 100, which was my next final. And the 100 was always my weakest event. You know, I, I, there wasn't always necessarily a huge amount of consistency to my 100 metres. And I remember I, I threw up 12 times on the warm-up track, oh, um, trying wow. to warm up and get ready for the race. And I remember when a poor coach, Jason, who was allocated to look after me, stood there with a bag of ice on my necks and sort of making light of the moment but saying... God, I'm like, I'm never going to like be a warm up coach again. You know, this is just as I'm kind of coughing up stomach lining. And then I remember as as I left the warm up track, um, so my husband was a, he's a coach and um, he just sort of said to me, um, we, we, we had a joke between us in, 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 in racing where his good luck, he never said good luck to me because I used to hate people saying good luck to me. He used to just say it's a good day to die, which means put everything into it, you know, just don't leave no stone unturned. So Ian said to me, it's a good day to die. Jason slightly scowled at him and said, good luck. Um, and I remember leaving the track. And then I don't remember much else, but but uh, winning the 100 was was probably the best race of my entire life. Wow. Love this trip down memory lane and reflecting on such a wonderful career. But since retiring, you've continued to be so involved in sport and physical activity. 
was it therefore important to you in essence to give something back when you yourself retired from elite sport i think yeah i mean it was something that was always sort of part of you know i i guess my my parents view of the world so you know i was really lucky that i i had a really good education you know um i i actually should have gone to the same high school that my sister was at but because i was a wheelchair user i wasn't allowed to go there so my parents fought to get me into mainstream education and i ended up going to high school over in panath um a place called st cyrus and so you know i had access to a good education and support and you know, through my first club, which was Bridgend and then Cardiff, I had amazing coaching. And so, you know, Roy Anthony was my first coach and then Dave Williams and my parents were all saying, you know, you, you've been really lucky, give something back. So it, it was just sort of part of there. And I think, you know, especially my dad would be saying, you know, you, you've had a lot of privilege. So, and, and you've got a voice, you know, and you've got an opinion and don't be afraid to sort of tell people and to, you know, try and fight for change, because there's still a lot of discrimination out there against disabled people. And I'm one of many, many voices arguing why we need to do things in a, in a different way. So it's not always easy. But, you know, I, I don't want some of the things that I was fighting for as a young athlete in terms, or, you know, as a young disabled person in terms of accessible transport and things like that. I, I don't want the next generation or the, you know, young ones coming through now to be still fighting for the same thing. Sadly, we still are, but for some things. So I think for me, it was about, yeah, just sort of being involved and just trying to make things better. And pe people like you or don't like you for that. You know, I wouldn't say I, I get treated three ways. I get treated one way as an ex-athlete, one way as a parliamentarian and people either like you or don't like you. Um, and then sort of slightly differently, if you know, I'm a, as a disabled woman. Yeah, I, I think it's important to try and use your platform and your voice to, to change things for better. Uh, you mentioned about being a parliamentarian because back in 2010, uh, you became an independent crossbench peer in the House of Lords, taking on the title of Baroness Grey Thompson of Eagles Cliff in the County of Durham. Mm. Wow, super impressive. Yeah. But as a working peer, in all seriousness, you know, you've become very influential, haven't you, in terms of, of raising and discussing key issues, just as you mentioned, you know, about having a platform and indeed a voice. How much do you enjoy that particular role? I do. I mean, I'm, I, again, I think I'm very privileged to have a second career, which I, I love. I mean, sometimes it feels like I'm smashing my head into a brick wall. Um, and then other times when you sort of bring about some kind of change, it feels, you know, really good, but also conscious that if you're changing legislation, there's people who like you for it and there's people who hate you for it. And it's, it, it's actually, there's a lot of similarities between sport and politics in that, you know, in, in sport, you spend this massive amount of time training and for this tiny amount of time that you actually get to compete at, you know, the the top level, you know, Paralympics, my Paralympic career is 19 and a half minutes to my life. So, you know, in, in politics, you can spend this massive amount of time writing speeches and working and preparing for a debate that's that you contribute, or you're not allowed to contribute more than say two minutes. So I think my my career in sport has helped me put those kind of things into perspective that you've just got to work your socks off. And you might be lucky to, to try and do something that's that sort of 
a bit different. And well, and I think the other thing with sport, it teaches you, you know, if, if people watch you compete in their living room, you know, you're part, they treat you as if you're part of the family because they feel they know you because you're there in the living room. So, you know, when I was competing, people used to come up and say, oh, that race was good. That was rubbish. You know, you looked a bit sweaty. I was like, yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's, yeah, that was very, you know, you, and you're not, you're not rude at all. My parents would haunt me if I was rude to people like that. But um, but sometimes some of the things people say are really like the people don't mean to be rude. They sometimes just want to have a conversation with you. And sometimes those moments are really funny. So I remember being in this really difficult, contentious, horrible debate. And I'd spent so much time writing my speech and getting ready and just kind of slay the dragons and I'd, I'd come out and somebody said oh yeah I, I listened to that debate and I was like oh what did you think and she said you really should brush your hair before you go into the chamber <laughs> and I remember that no. moment where it's like okay do you know what and it is it's like oh, there are moments dear. where you go you, you need to embrace it and the moments where you just go okay that's fine. but then I had I had someone else a little while ago so, oh, pre-lockdown stopped me and said oh you're with Tally Gray Thompson I was like yeah, no, you know, hi, how are you? And she said, oh, you're not as skinny as you used to be. Oh, and, uh, yeah, goodness. yeah, thank Thanks you. for that. And, she, and she's like, yeah, because you've put on quite a bit of weight, haven't you? And I was like, yeah. Well, and uh, like, well, well, I'm not training anymore, so, you know, and this is probably a bit more of my natural body weight. And, and Ian, my husband, was there, and he was going, yeah, she's yeah, she's just, she's not, is she? It's like, stop it. So, <laughs> That's I mean, all you people, need, support. People are mostly really kind and really sweet. They just want to say something, so you know it's it's okay. You 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 have to take it from, I think, um, a position of love, and and people generally trying to be kind. So that's okay. I can deal with that. And in terms of this time of your career, what would you say you're particularly proud of? That's a much harder question to answer because in sport, I think there's an assumption. You'd say always it, it's easy. It's easier in sport to say those gold medals or the world record. Or um, the the reality is the layers beneath that are much more complicated. But you've got something very tangible with with a medal. In politics, it's much harder because the reality is most of the stuff that I do, uh, which is around disability rights, welfare reform, legal aid. Uh, whenever I take anything to a vote, there's a three line whip against me. So um, it's it's harder to to recognise those moments, but there's definitely things where, you know, have shifted, you know, government legislation on sort of welfare benefits for disabled children, the things where you can start sort of moving things in a, another direction. But it's it's hard because it's it's not the same. And sport is winning and losing. I I could win a vote in the Lords, but then if it goes back to the Commons, it'll get overturned. So sometimes what you have to learn is is the patience to say, okay, right, I'm not going to vote on this. I'll just take what the minister's given me, because that. And so although you don't get the win of the vote, that's better than losing everything that you'd argued for um, if it went back to the Commons. So you're better sometimes taking something rather than nothing. That that's the hardest stuff to learn. And we have rules for everything. We have rules for what colour carpets guests can stand on at certain times a day. And actually, that's a bit like sport. Once you know the rules, it's much easier to, to engage in, in the day-to-day the -day stuff. 
Now, you're chair of UK Active, and I know you've been working very closely with our very own CEO, Mark Sessnan, a fellow board member, especially during the pandemic and the challenges the sports sector in particular has faced. It, it really has been a tough time for everybody. But if we're just going to specifically talk about the sporting sector, a lot of challenges. It's It's been really brutal, you know, in a sector that passionately you know cares about people being active nobody could have predicted the pandemic and there's been so much pressure on the sector in terms of closures and what's been amazing you know the sector's just stepped up and in terms of things like you know ventilation and moving equipment and sanitization and things like that I'm kind of really proud of, of what the, the sector's done. And and if you look at the, the spread of COVID through the sector, it's tiny. It's it's less than one in a hundred thousand cases. But you know, the government made decisions to to close and that, that's been hard. It's hard on people and it's hard on the businesses and it's hard on individuals who aren't able to to get to, you know, these these places to, to train and, and be active. What has been amazing in first lockdown you know, just seeing how people who'd probably never gone out and jogged or ridden a bike were doing it. And um, I mean, just the number of women and, and people um, I saw on bikes who thinking you've had that in a garage for a while and you've never used it because you can tell by the seat height that they have it. <laughs> and so, I mean, this is what Ian thought I was mad. So I, I used to start shouting at people on because where we live, there's quite a lot of bike paths, which is why we live here because the training used to be brilliant. And, um, I used to be shouting at people on the bike paths to, to lift their seat and, and tell, them how, <laughs> tell them how to get their seat height right. And I'm sure quite a few, uh, there were two young women I stopped and I'm, I'm sure, you know, they were thinking, oh, who's this barmy old woman in a wheelchair? And um, when I explained to them why I was stopping them, they were like, oh, right. And so I did get to this, this, the stage where I used to take spanners out with me. Um, to, to you tell are people, kidding me now, okay? You are no. kidding me. No, it's, 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 oh really my mad. goodness! Right, so I, I kind of recognise that as I say it, it sounds a bit mad, but it does. It does. If you don't mind me saying, okay. But if if you're, this is my justification. If if you're out on a bike to be fit and active, and the bike seat is the wrong height, you are not going to pedal efficiently, and you're going to have a miserable time, and you're not going to enjoy it. So, you know, so actually, just having someone tell you how to, cause why would you know how to set a seat height unless you've ever done it? So, um. I, I, I did, um, I'll write this sound to um, one of my friends in sport is, is Chris Hoy. And so I did, I did ring him and say, Chris, where's the best website that I can tell people to go to, to <laughs> set their seat? I mean, if you're going to go and ask someone about a seat height, you go to the button. Easy man. Yeah. And he, he said, right, this is the best website. So I used to shout at people and tell them to go to this particular website to check their seat height. Okay, I realise I, I, I don't. I don't really know what to say about that. That is absolutely hilarious. But yes, caring like that, um, and and it's in all seriousness, it's what you're talking about. Is you know right from the offset, having a voice, and I just think what you do is is phenomenal in terms of just championing, you know, people's rights and 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 trying to make accessibility and inclusion far better than it, than it is now, which is, is so important in society, isn't it? It is because, you know, if you just look at train transport, the Disability Discrimination Act in the mid nineties promised that January the 1st, 2020, trains would be wheelchair accessible. 
and they're not even close. I mean, and there's there's not one person. I mean, it's every successive government has allowed pushback. And I did have somebody in January last year tell me that I just needed to be a bit more patient and that would get accessible trains by 2070. And it's like, I'm, I'm not going to be around in 2070. You know, I'll be dead. So I'm, I'm sort of slightly done with being, I, I think for a long time, I, I was okay to be, to have a level of patience, but I'm kind of not anymore because the, the reality is that there's still quite a lot of discrimination out there against disabled people. Um, I mean, it's hard stuff, but you look at the Office of National Statistics data to see, um, you know, 60% of the people who've died from COVID are disabled. Um, and so, you know, there's lots and lots of challenges ahead in terms of accessibility and education. You know, I'm still dealing with education cases where disabled children are being excluded from education. Um, and you yeah. just go, this is, this is not right. Just because somebody's no. disabled, you, you, they shouldn't be excluded. I get really annoyed because you're thinking that happened to me 40 years ago. That shouldn't be happening now. Um, and it was, I, I, I was doing some tidying up as I think we've all done a bit more in lockdown than we ever did. I'm not the tidiest person. And, um, I, I found all the letters that my dad had written to the local education authority basically threatening to sue the Secretary of State of, over my right to go to mainstream school. I mean, his letters were amazing. Um, and and it sort of just sort of kicked in again that we disabled children shouldn't be fighting for the same stuff. So any time I feel sort of it's a bit hard or it's, you know, I'm not getting anywhere, I kind of remember the stuff that my parents did for me and think, okay, right, you know, just, you know, keep keep going keep keep having the fight keep sort of pushing for the change yeah what wonderful role models your parents sound absolutely fabulous um do you do you get out now and and obviously during lockdown we're talking about physical activity do you do you still enjoy getting out and doing a bit of training i really miss going to the gym i mean part it's it's is the equipment it's the people it's just being able to kind of chat to other people it's the social side it's it's lots of different things but but you know I think we just sadly we are where we are but I mean what was amazing after first lockdown was that you know going back to to the gym and just seeing people and how pleased they were to be back out and you know th things like swimming actually so the, the lack of ability to swim has had a big impact on on a lot of people, especially a lot of older women, because that was the exercise of choice. So, you know, there's there's those things have been really hard on, on a lot of people. Yeah, tough times, but we'll come through it. And let's hope that the future looks much brighter. And especially with individuals like you, Tani, who are championing for all of us. It's a it's great to have you speaking and having that voice. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat today. I know how busy you are. So thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you, Tani, for joining us on Better Stories. Thank you. Better is the charitable social enterprise that operates leisure centres, gyms, swimming pools and libraries across the UK. For more information, visit www.better.org.uk or download the Better app. Better Stories, taking inspiration from our communities and people.